Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Scott Malpass, the esteemed Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of Notre Dame, where he oversees the university's $12 billion endowment. Scott earned his BA and MBA degrees at Notre Dame and returned to South Bend at the ripe age of 26 following a brief stint on Wall Street. His track record for almost 30 years, as defined by both performance and impact, place him indisputably in rare company at the very top of the field. Among his many accolades, Scott received Institutional Investors Endowment Manager of the Year Award, Nakubo's Rodney H. Adams Award, and CIO Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award. 
He's taught students at Notre Dame since 1995, and among other directorships and advisory councils, he serves on the boards of the Vatican Bank, Vanguard, and TIFF, and previously served on the Investment Advisory Committee for Major League Baseball. In 2014, Scott became part of the founding group for Catholic Investment Services, Inc., a nonprofit that offers top-tier investment solutions to Catholic organizations nationally. Our conversation is a full-blown masterclass on endowment management, including the benefits of a long-tenured team, asset allocation frameworks, passive management, preparing for dislocations, the state of venture capital, sourcing, monitoring, and exiting managers, incremental process improvements, professional and personal development, and education and alignment across constituencies. It's hard not to be in awe of Scott's combination of humility, experience, and success. I'm quite sure you'll enjoy this show. If you do, this week, in honor of Scott's terrific work, take a break during your day and sing your alma mater's fight song at the top of your lungs. If anyone around you asks what you're doing, tell them you're following the instructions you heard for health and happiness on the Capital Allocators podcast. Thanks for spreading the word. Before we get going, I'd like to invite you to join the Capital Allocate. Scott. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited. Why don't we start with you just talking about how you got here in the first place as a 26-year-old? No, well, first of all, thanks for coming to Notre Dame. And I'm glad you got in had a tour last night. See our beautiful campus. And, yeah, first and, uh, day of classes too. The first day of classes. It's pretty, uh, pretty a lot exciting. of energy out there. Very exciting, and it's it's part of the reason you come work at a university. You know, is because of the students and the energy, and in our case, the the Catholic mission is certainly a big draw. But but I uh, I'm a Notre Dame graduate, undergrad. I was actually a science major. Thought I wanted to be a doctor, so I started off pre med. I love science. I think the, the the patterns and frameworks and and kind of analytical aspect of that I, I was always attracted to. But as I t- got toward my senior year, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with that. And I ended up going to business school, fell in love with the markets, worked at the Irving Trust Company in New York City, which, uh, as you know, was taken over by the Bank of New York many, many years ago. But a great place to learn. And they had this little investment consulting group that worked with their custodial clients on asset allocation and manager search. And I had this fabulous gentleman, Ralph Nisley, who was my boss, and he took me all over the country to meet with these pension funds and talk about asset allocation. I just I just found it very intellectually stimulating, very interesting. I honestly didn't know anything about venture capital or private equity or emerging markets. I was 23, 24 years old and was fascinated by all of that. Irving was the custodian for the Notre Dame Endowment, so I knew the CIO at Notre Dame, Father Richard Zhang, who I also knew from campus. He had been the rector of the graduate dorm. And ultimately, he was starting to try to expand the office and hired me as his assistant in August of 1988. He decided to move on to another assignment in the order nine months later. So in April of 89, I became CIO at age 26. Wow. Which obviously would probably never happen again. I'm not even sure how it happened, but but Bob Wilmoth, who was chairman of our investment committee, one of the great men that I've ever met, great business mind, huge, tremendous leader, motivator. He said, "Kiddo, we're going to do this together," and he just started delegating things to me and let me run with it. But he was always there for me to give me confidence and make sure we had the resources and the budget to do this right. We sort of had this tremendous alignment of what we wanted to do. 
and it just evolved. And I was able to build the operation over almost 30 years now. It was really just really wanting to be back at Notre Dame and help with the endowment. And then Bob Wilmoth really helping me get this, get this started. Just a couple of us with a kind of a vision and just day to day, just slugging it out. But it, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I came back. I thought I'd come back for a couple of years and, and then they, you know, they go back to Wall Street. And here I am, you know, 30 yeah, years I later. I can see how this is, would not be an easy place to leave. I mean, it is, it is special. It is special. Thank you. you know, one of the things that, I'm really curious to talk to you about is your team and really the people involved. And across the board, if you talk about the people, there's your team and the staff, there's the investment committee, there's the investment committee chairs and managers, and there's just an unusual amount of duration across the board. Well, keep in mind, Ted, we're a place where we've only had three presidents since 1952, the average tenure of a college president's four years, so we've had three since 1952. The legendary Father Hesburgh, who just passed away a couple years ago, Father Malloy, and now Father Jenkins. We've only had two chairs of the investment committee since 1978, and I'm a CIO for 30 years. So it's a place that draws people in to the, to the mission, and, and they stay, and they really committed. So I've been able to assemble a great team that feels the same way. All of the core investment team are Notre Dame alumni. Honestly, I don't, I don't know if they'd want to do this anywhere else. I think they're doing this for Notre Dame. They might go work at a family office or something. They would not go work at another endowment. They just, they aren't, they're not, unlike sort of the Yale model, which is tremendous and putting out CIOs all over the country. It's, it's, but it's a different philosophy than what we have in that regard. They, they want to be here and they want to be committed to Notre Dame. So, yes, I have eight directors. Three of them were over 20 years. The rest are over 10, 15. Some are just younger. They're just at 10. But it's a very close-knit team, shares a lot of the same values, sees the bigger picture and what their work accomplishes for students and faculty. I always talk about financial aid. I think I think when I think about what we've done for financial aid and growing those resources so students can afford a Notre Dame education. And every day we see the tangible signs of that. We see them in the office and in, as interns, we see them walking around campus. And we know a lot of those young people can't be here if it weren't for our work. And that's very motivating. And I'm sure it's motivating to my peers at other schools who do the same thing. So I, I just want to poke on a challenge with that, which is when you have a team with that type of passion and commitment, Somewhere along the way in your 30 years, I imagine you would have had someone that you hired into the team who didn't work out for some reason. Or maybe they shared that passion and commitment, but they ended up not having the degree of competency that you would have liked. How do you handle those situations when it's such a family-type culture? You know, it's actually gone fine. I mean, you're, you're right. We, you, you want some turnover you know, over time. I, I absolutely agree with that. And not everybody wants to be in, in the same position for their entire career. And, and, and the culture is not to make them feel guilty or bad in some way because they want to do something else. We don't, we don't have that. I've, I tell all my people, if you want to be a CIO, I'm 100% behind you. Let me know and I'll help you. And, and that's happened with a couple of people and they've done really well and others it hasn't. So it, the culture is not, boy, if you don't stay here, you're disloyal or you're, or you're a bad person. The, the culture is we'll help you do whatever you want to achieve in life. It just happens that most of them just want to be here. And then also on your investment committee, I, I, if, if this is right, I thought I read that the, the members of the investment committee are non-rotating. The chair of the investment committee is the only chair that has not rotated. Typically, a chair will rotate, you know, every 
four to six years, could be longer, but that would be more typical. Maybe eight years would be the outside. Yeah. But the, the board chairs have decided that this, this kind of continuity has actually been very helpful. And we've been lucky. We've been very fortunate to have had great chairs of the investment committee. Bob Wilmoth and now Jay Jordan, who's a private equity legend. And Jay's been chair since 95. And that has been a huge luxury for me and my team. The dialogue... You know, we sort of know what we're saying to each other, and we, we can tell by the tone kind of what we mean. There's continuity in the philosophy. Jay offers great advice and counsel. I know what he's thinking about things. He knows what I'm thinking. There's no trying to dance around issues. We're very direct because there's a friendship and there's a, a, a familiarity there, which I think creates just very efficient dialogue. So I, I, I compliment the chairs of our board for allowing that to happen because it's very unusual. And probably most people would say it's probably not the best governance practice, but actually I, it really has worked for us. But the committee itself does rotate. You know, the, most of our committee members are also on other committees of the board, so they can they can be assigned to the investment committee. They can also be assigned to other committees, and, and typically they, they are, so they're on two or three committees. There's some rotation, but typically if we get someone with really good asset management or capital markets experience, we want to keep them on the investment committee. And we've had a tremendous group of trustees on our committee over the 30 years I've been here from all areas of the capital markets, private equity, real estate, venture, very fortunate. Can you share an example of how having that continuity and kind of institutional knowledge over the years has either translated into a good or better investment decision or something that you imagine might have gone a little bit differently if you didn't have the same type of uh, consistency? No, absolutely. So the number one example I can think of would be going through the global financial crisis where everybody's sort of rethinking everything, right? Liquidity, strategy, philosophy. Where, where do we go from here? The, we didn't know where the bottom was. And you're, you're tested, right? And, and you're thinking, okay, how far down is this going to go before we do something different? We never wavered, of course. I mean, we, we believe in our program and, you know, there was not one single voice that felt we should be doing anything differently than what we're doing. We stayed the course. We rebalanced as we could. That was difficult because of liquidity. So you're a little more cautious there. But we came out of that very well. I think we were the only endowment in the top 20 major endowment that did not cut endowment spending. We actually didn't cut. We had a flat year and then up again. So that was very unusual. So just that, just that we were on the same page, we, we had a long-term approach and philosophy. We weren't going to change that. It was a very difficult time, but we stayed with it. And, you know, we went a little over $7 billion pre-crisis to high fives, and now we're at twelve. So by not panicking and staying the course, so having, having a group that's been together a long time really helped work through that. I get another example, we bought our first single asset in real estate, 100% ownership, direct asset, about 10 years ago. And a member of our committee was aware that I was wanting to do some of that. Not, not a lot, but, but some. Chicago in particular, it's great training for your real estate team to actually have a building, to work on budgets and deal with the property manager. It's, it's great training. And he was aware that we wanted to do something. And he, being a real estate developer himself, he became aware of a property in Chicago, the, the old Santa Fe building, the Railway Exchange building, which we ended up buying in, in 06 and owned to this day. It's more than doubled in value. It's went from 70% occupied to 95. We're now have a whole new plan for the building. I don't think that would have happened had this person not known what we were doing and had interest in helping us find the right property to start that. Did it work in terms of the intellectual transfer of your team being responsible for a building 
building their knowledge base to make yes, better partnerships. Completely. Real we are yeah. so much savvier real estate investors than we were prior to that. No question. You know, dealing with property management and all the details of a of a building, and and even now as we interview kind of restaurant operators for putting in a real nice high end restaurant in the building, just doing that, you know, has been fascinating. And uh, I try not to get too. You know, spend too much time in those kind of details because I want to stay a little, a little higher than that because there's so much going on. But I learn a lot from that myself. So I love sitting in those meetings with my team and, and being involved as much as I can. And how do you think about that sort of time allocation? And is that time best spent getting deeper or would your team be better just doing what they do and looking for the next kind of entrepreneur to back? I think it's a balance for sure, Ted. And then we talk about that. In our size, look, we're, we're not going to have 10 of those in our portfolio. And Chicago is a great market for us. We wouldn't probably do that anywhere else or it'd be very limited because it's so close to us. We can get in there an hour and 20 minutes and, and come in and out. It's, it's fairly easy. So you have to pick your spots, but it's a balance. And, and, and we've, look, we've had, we've had opportunities to do other things we've passed on in that regard. You know, it was a unique asset. But I'll tell you, if I could find another one like that, I would do it. But it is always a balance. And we talk about how we allocate our time in that regard. So let me take a quick step back and address the broader question of your core investment beliefs that drive and how you've structured the portfolio. You know, it's evolved a lot from the beginning, because remember, I was pretty young. And I'll never forget, uh, just a quick story, when I went out to uh, meet with I, the Capital Guardian Trust Company was one of our managers in 1988. And at that time, we had a fairly plain vanilla portfolio, so they did a lot of our U.S. equities. And they, as you know, they had a, a really good record back in the 70s and 80s and did a great job. But I was talking with Dick Barker, who was president of Capital at the time. He was in the San Francisco office. He wanted to live up in, in the Bay Area. And I said, Dick, you know, I'm up here and I, I've, I'm hearing about more venture capital activities of large endowment funds. And we had a couple of very small allocations to Boston-based managers at the time. I had actually not met yet because I was just new. But I said, I, I understand most of the core folks are out here. Is there anybody you think I should meet with? And he said, well, my gosh, we, we helped fund Don Valentine. The, and and you got to meet Don, and he called Don, and I was went down to the next day, and that's that's how it started. Now we're, you know, one of the largest investors with Sequoia in the country, and and it's been a fabulous friendship and partnership. But that's literally how it started, and I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley and what was going on. Other than there was a lot of tech companies, but boy, did I get immersed in it the next few years, and it was a lot of fun to do as well. So. You know, just just the opportunity to start meeting some really smart, savvy people across all asset classes. And that was kind of how you started it. It's just, yeah, you get just, to meet just, this person, see what they have to say, meet the next person. Me. I, was, I, I was at a point, you know, when you're younger like that, you know, I was meeting, any, I would meet almost anybody. I took meetings I would never take today. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you did the same thing. It's you happened know, you know, and, and, and it was just, I learned, I tell my younger staff, you, you know, you should do some of that. And I, I went to a lot of conferences and seminars and things that, again, I, I wouldn't do as much today because I don't think I get this much value today. But I did a lot of that then, not speaking, just sitting and le- listening. And I, I think you have to be open-minded as you're still forming your philosophy and getting a sense of what quality looks like and skill and the patterns of success. You know, I think meeting a lot of people and the bad patterns stand out too. That's true. What today drives the core beliefs that overlie the portfolio? Well, we never called it the endowment model back when I started. That came from the press later. I'm sure my peers who've been around would say the same thing. We felt that being a spending institution – 
and needing high real returns, we had to be in equities. But we wanted to diversify because we didn't want the risk of a single category. Pretty basic portfolio theory, to be honest. The twist was that the big endowments were really savvy at developing long-term relationships with the top people, getting them early, getting good alignment with them, and then staying with them for for a longer period of time and growing with them. I think that large endowment funds have have done a really good job of that, unlike a lot of other kinds of investors. Some have now caught up. It's a lot more competitive today, right? But I'll, I'll give I'll give a lot of credit to Jim Bailey at Cambridge because Jim assembled a group of endowments in the '70s to talk about these issues, and that from those meetings came the endowment model. Now the bigger endowments were able to execute it faster because they they were just had the resources. So the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, but then you think about Notre Dame and Northwestern and others as they started growing, they were doing the same things. But it was really the philosophy that Jim and, and his colleagues sort of put out really did help move this along, this thinking. So generally, we followed that basic approach, and we're just looking for skill wherever we can find it. We, it's so much more competitive. We're, doing, we're trying to get into with groups even earlier and help shape some of the terms and the alignment and capacity rights and just various things like that. We do more co-investing in real estate and private equity than we've ever done. You know, so you know, just more things that have control and allow us to, to really amplify and expand with our best partners, our exposures, things like that. And do you take a asset allocation framework approach? Are you more, as you're talking about it, it's more, let's find best of breed managers. Obviously, they own certain assets and that'll roll up. How top down is it? How yeah, so when we it? first, when I was first evolving in our program, we, we really needed to set some asset allocation targets. I needed to get the board comfortable with, okay, we're going to do this much in private equity. We're going to do this much in venture. So I think I thought it was important at the time to have a, a pretty good structure in place that was a clear asset allocation plan. And then within that, we were just looking for the best people. And so I think that 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 evolved. Then it did become, honestly, very bottoms up. As we, as we matured, and grew in size. You know, we've had dramatic growth. Like I said, I was it was four hundred million dollars when I started. Now we're our pool's over twelve billion. So, so as we evolved and matured, it became much more about about the skill and, and fit with our program. I will say we've come back a little bit when you think about some of the market changes, the, mar- the changes in market structure, the the movement to passive. I think portfolio construction techniques, at least in the public side have sort of come back, and I think you need to think about those a little more. Yeah, let's dive in there a little bit. How do you think about it? Right. So let's just, let's take a subset, a U.S. equity portfolio or a developed market international equity portfolio. What had your book looked like, and how do you think about this sort of, the power of a passive index? Yeah, so when I first started, we spent a lot of time looking for skill, but we were very conscious of styles. You might remember it was sort of large and small and mid-cap growth and value and blends. And that was micro-cap. Then you had mini-camp. And I think some of these firms kind of went crazy with this stuff. It got silly. But there's merit to factor now. I mean, it's undisputed that that factors are really important in determining stock stock price performance, stock market performance of individual companies. So paying attention to that, I think, is important. I mean, you can have long periods where certain styles are out of favor no matter how skilled the manager is. 
That's just a fact. We've seen that. Value's been really under pressure. We've seen that before, by the way. Uh, We saw that in the 90s. But it's really severe right now for a lot of different reasons, including just that some of the real growth areas like technology are just really much bigger than they used to be, and the banks are smaller. You know, so I mean, there's been a lot of shifts in the sectors. There is a fundamental change in that these very large cap companies are still growing like crazy and getting market share, and that's at the expense of increasingly value. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the top five market cap companies in the S and P today versus twenty years ago, I mean, it's completely different, right? It's it's all technology. So that's a big difference. But I do think it's important to pay attention to the kinds of exposures you have in a portfolio and make sure that your structure reflects some boundaries. We're not willing to have 10 years where value is out of favor and we've got 90% value managers. That we just can't, we're, we have too much to do here. <laughs> I mean, sure, you say it's perpetual, but it's, it's, it's perpetual in many ways, but it's also we got to spend every year. And we're ambitious, and I, I can't take a 10-year period where I have all these managers underperform because their style's out of favor. That's not a satisfactory. So, so I think having some boundaries there and understanding that's really important. And do you have views of what factors you'd like to tilt to? We do. It, we tend to stay fairly simplistic, though. I don't think getting too cute there is helpful. It, you really can't time most of them anyways. But I think having the right balance is important, knowing what you have, having some balance, making sure the big factors, you know, are, are you're very aware of. You growth know, value. Growth value, large, small. Yeah. You could throw in other, other things, but I think those are the big ones. Kind of back to where we were a, a bit, you know, 20, 30 That's years kind of, ago. And how much of the endowment is invested in just public equities? So our, our public equity bucket, which includes long-short equity, okay. is about 40%. Oh, so it's pretty important. Yeah, but long-short's about 10%, so a yeah. quarter of that. So it's, it's, yeah. we have plenty of long equities. Active management's had a really tough slog over the last seven or eight years. Indexing, we know where the trend is going in terms of fund flows. You have quant and big data coming in. Do you ever sit back and say, huh, like the fundamental managers that we love and understand that comprise the core of our portfolio, married with whatever factor balances we have, might not cut it. There, there is a lot of structural change going on in markets, and I think you just have to understand it and embrace it. Computers, computer-driven models, quant firms, passive. Uh, millennials, for example, they want to go online. They want to do index low-cost products most ESG uh, focused generally and they're not going to spend the time doing the research that we used to do on company they want to quick efficient and they want to move on to other projects so so for example at Vanguard where we pioneered you know passive investing we're you know well over four trillion now we we're bringing in 300 billion a year I don't see that subsiding anytime soon <laughs> it doesn't feel like it yeah you know 30 million families investing with us in their various investment accounts and and retirement accounts. I think it's a very good thing for the public because most people have no idea how to allocate their money. I think these target date funds where you have the slide path, I think it's fantastic. I think about our own faculty and our programs here. And they can invest in those funds that match their retirement age. They don't have to worry about it. They have to spend a lot of time on it. They don't want to. They're doing research. They're teaching. I think some of these innovations have been incredibly helpful for the broad retail public and retirement funding. 
I think Vanguard's played a great role with that. And it, I get asked a lot, well, you, you don't do a lot of passive. You're on all these, you know, esoteric, you know, active strategies, high active risk. You're not benchmark oriented. How does that square with your belief in passive? I said, it's completely consistent. I said, if I didn't have a team like I have here scouring the world doing 800 meetings a year looking for the best talent, I would index most of it. If I were running a state funded 150 billion, I would index most of it, but I've got a much smaller fund than that, and I've got a full team here, and we can do this, but most people can't, and I would argue there might only be 50 or 60 investors in the world who really can do this model well. I don't think there's a lot. I think most people should be using more of these other techniques. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a view in your head of the U.S. market? S&P 500 is something like 30, maybe a third, 33, 34% is, is indexed today. Do you have, there's this debate, Charlie Ellis says, oh, we can get to 90%. Do you have any view from the seat of, of what's a healthy amount? Well, I don't believe that because there's been a lot of flows in the passive that all these stocks are overvalued. They're structurally overvalued and, and, and people are going to lose money because they're buying at a high. I don't believe in that general narrative, to be honest. I think You've got broad indices with a lot of companies. And sure, when there's, when there's market corrections, they're going to go down with the market. But because you haven't had as much friction in trading and fees, you've already way ahead. The rebound's going to be correlated directly, you know, with your, your allocation. So, I mean, the data is very clear. You know, most, most people should, should do passive and they should be low cost because it's the trading and, and turnover and, and fees that really undermine most retail portfolios. And I'm, I'm glad institutions are doing more of this. Like I said, we, we do, we'll do some passive ETFs temporarily. We're looking at exposures or transitioning some managers, or we might have a theme we want to put in place that's opportunistic for a shorter period. We've done some of that, and we'll continue to do that. And I, and I actually think as the fund grows, we'll probably do more of it. And I'm not against that at all. I, I, I'm, I'm that. I, I'm looking long-term at how I can get the right exposures and make sure that, that I'm not missing out on something because I'm being obstinate about I can't find an active manager that does that. I'm, I'm going to use all those tools. So when, when you think about anything opportunistic or tactical, it has to be relative to some baseline, right? If there's 30% stocks, do you want to move it to 40% long only? Or emerging markets, I remember way, way back when you had a much larger allocation to emerging markets than your peers. Right. Um, Early on, we did. That's right. What are the things today in the markets or the last couple of years or looking forward that you think might be more interesting areas to be exploring in terms of those tilts? Well, I will tell you that we've been spending a lot of the, a lot of the last couple of years thinking about some of these longer term portfolio construction ideas. I think just, you know, obviously the market's been good the last couple of years. Volatility has been low. And it's been a time where you could sit back and think more about sort of longer-term construction. And we've been doing a lot of that, and especially given our size now. Look, we were opportunistic with the, when the energy collapse. There were some things we did there. We're all, that, those are relatively easy, right, because it's clear that there's an opportunity and you just have to be positioned to, to take advantage of it and have liquidity. And I think all the big endowments and foundations are pretty well set up for that. Yeah. I know whenever we've, I've been through what, four distress cycles. The next time there's a distress cycle, I'm sure we'll hit that really well it again. Just seem to, you know, the time windows just seem to compress a lot more because the it's capital true. just, so you have to be ready. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, we're, look, we're, in, we're talking with managers now that we won't use until the next collapse. But when, when, when that happens, we'll be ready. They'll be ready and, and we'll be able to put a lot of capital to work. 
So we're, we're, we're anticipating things maybe more than in the past even. We've always had good liquidity because we have fundraising. We have good inflow. You know, we're fortunate, right, as an investor. You sort of get great cash flow. We, we're in the middle of a campaign now. And, and so, you know, like, of course, everybody's in a campaign, right, all the time. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's a great structural advantage for the big endowments, you know, in terms of rebalancing and, and all of that. So we're we're always looking, you know, I'm, I think about emerging markets, I think about what a weaker dollar could mean. Europe, there's parts, aspects of Europe that look very interesting. We do a lot of, in, in private equity, we've always done more of that middle market and lower middle market. And in Europe, that's a very attractive space right now because the banks are struggling tricky so much. To, it seems like it's been tricky to find the right partners. There's, but, there's yeah. not as many as we'd like because I think we'd like to put more capital in, but we have found a few. And, and, and so... That's an area we've put a lot of time into. We actually did a two-year pilot with our a London operation we just completed, and we've had we had some staff in London over the last couple of years, really thinking about deepening our networks, uh, extending our brand, learning about other opportunities. If we want to do more direct kinds of investing, having people on the ground would be advan- you know, an advantage. It was also a great development opportunity for some of our team, but it was always a pilot. We our board is great about letting us experiment with things like that. And, and I said, look, I'd like to do this, but I don't want to make a 100% commitment yet because I'm not sure we we're going to want to do it. In terms of having an office, having an on office the there. So yeah. luckily we have a tremendous academic program in London. We have 150 kids a semester there. We have a gateway program. We have our own building. We were able to just plug into one of the offices. Uh, and, and so you and, took, you know, were they, these are existing people on your team? Existing then. people on our team. So we had, we had two, two folks, uh, two of my directors did it for a year, and then two others did it a second year. And then we had some rotation of some of the analysts and associates. What and what was the outcome of that? You know, it was fascinating. It, I would do it again. It was incredibly accretive to our work, our mapping out of the money management community in Europe our understanding of the European Union and the institutions. Of course, Brexit happened while we were there. That was interesting. We certainly didn't expect that. But just being on the ground there really helped us think through that as it occurred. But, you know, we, we made a lot of new friends. And we're there all the time. We were going all the time before that, and we'll continue to. But being on the ground somewhere does give you a chance to deepen relationships and spend more time with people you don't when you're coming in for a week. Despite all that, we decided that unless you're really like if you're a big pension fund doing a lot of direct private equity, you know, probably be on the ground. We don't we don't need to be right now. We feel that we 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 sort of got a good feel for what's there and we'll be able to keep up with it just through our normal course of travel. So we're taking a pause from that, but we could always restart it and we, or we could do it in another geography. We could do it somewhere else. You could do it in Asia or Singapore or something. You know, I always wonder about that when you have such a familial feeling culture here. You know, it's the flip side of having people and getting the new network and on the ground is they're not here. Right. Um, I think that was difficult. Yeah. I think we determined over the two years that although we, I'm glad we did the experiment, that having them back here and being part of the day-to-day dialogue, same time zone, was more an advantage for us than having anybody over there yeah, on the ground. Yeah, it's not surprising. It's it's a tough, those are tough trade-offs, especially, I mean, I'm sure when you started, I remember back in my early years, it wasn't a global investing business. No. And you could do that trip to London once a year and that would be just That's fine. right, that's right. There might be an alum there, there that helps there, you And there weren't yeah. very many people worth talking to. You know, part of doing London, London became such a gateway for the world. You know, everybody's in London, right? And I mean, I remember when I was, I went over for four months when we started this on my own. I would live there for four months. I was surprised how many of our Chinese partners were coming through London. 
for various things. I was I met them more in London that four or five months than I did going to China. I mean, it's just incredible. So we'll see how that evolves with Brexit. You know, some people are pretty negative about what's going to happen in, in, in London because of Brexit. I have no idea. We'll see how the how it shakes out. But but there's going to be change. And but that 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 happened sort of late in our time there. So that wasn't a big part of our thinking. So you went over yourself for four months. What did that do to your team here? Well, a lot, they were coming through, rotating through, doing their normal course of, of work. So I saw everybody, you know, throughout that period. I came back a couple of times. I had board meetings and I had to be back. So I say four months, but I, honestly, I was probably there like two months total, to be honest. So it was pretty short. Right. That makes sense. Talked about some of the things that you're looking at and opportunities. I'm really curious of your take on the pricing in the venture capital markets today. And what, you know, that's a business that clearly for the endowments and other institutions, it's been super important to be with the right partners and be there for the long term. And it does feel like there's this self-fulfilling prophecy that when you're Sequoia and you have great returns, you seem to get the better deals, which allows you to get great returns. The entrepreneurs want to work with you. What do you do, if anything, differently when, you know, it sure feels like there's a lot of capital flooding into these companies across that ecosystem? Well, because I have a 30-year tenure, I've seen some of this behavior before. And so I'm always skeptical of, of, of some of these, you know, periods, late cycle where there's, you know, a lot of froth and, and overpaying and, and so forth. You know, I think the, the data shows that 80 plus percent, maybe 90 percent of unicorns don't make it, so I don't get too high uh, and fired up. Is it up. really that many? It's a, it's a high percentage. Is that because in 2000, 2002, that's when, that that's was, probably the only period of time where you had a comparable. lot of would be right? comp- Well, until now, yeah, so it's a high number. It's at least 80%, and so, you know, people people say, oh, gosh, you know, there's so much fragmentation now in, in the venture community, and there's so many people raising money, and there's so many more players. That's true. Money capital is coming from a wider array of sources, search funds, little angel networks, no question about it. But if you really look at what are the companies that really become big and, and, and sustainable, every cycle, there's only two or three, you know, the Googles, you know, the Facebooks, there's only a couple. And those tend to be funded by the same people. So, yeah, more capital, wider arrays of sources of capital, you know, but but still it's a small group doing the big transformational companies. Look, we, we're very conservative in our valuations. We, we, we report what our managers give us on our valuations. They're very conservative. They take huge discounts. They're 20, 30, 40% depending on the company. If anything, you could argue that we've understated our, the values. If you look at history, they've been understated, honestly. But that's okay. Uh, I mean, we'll get the value out of it when, when it's appropriate and when it happens, when there's a liquidity event, we'll get our, what we, uh, what, our ownership and, and we'll go from there. So, yeah, there's been, there's been down rounds uh, this time and many uh, venture holdings. That, that's, they were probably ahead of themselves and they probably should be some down rounds. What do you think about the the implications of all of this capital at those sort of different stages of private markets where, you know, now you're reading more about how the number of public companies has been cut in half. And a lot of that is because I remember back when the venture company wasn't often cash flow positive when it went public. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I think yeah, I think there's four thousand less public companies today than there were twenty years, something like that. It's incredible. Who would have thought that, you know, ten years ago that that would happen? 
I don't see that changing. I, I, I you know, the, I, unless there's some regulatory change or some other issue that a structural change that would have caused people to think differently. There's just so much capital. Why would you want to be public? You can get financing. You know, I mean, Uber, who's had their share of, of you know, uh, public relations challenges uh, <laughs> uh, lately, but they could go get as much capital as they wanted. And so could a lot of other companies, for, you know. So I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, so it's a very, again, those are one of the structural changes I was alluding to that our, has made our job very different than what it was before. Yeah. Investors always talk about the issue of short-termism, particularly in the, in the public markets. And I've just been stewing on this notion a little bit of that behavior is forced to be better in the private markets, right? You give your money to the venture capitalist, he has it for 10 years. Yes. They make whatever decisions they make about the companies, but because of the illiquidity, um, do you see that as you look through the venture capitalists to their portfolio companies that businessmen are making better decisions at all because they're still private? Yes. The answer is yes. But I do worry about short-termism in general as an investor. I think that is one of the biggest threats to high returns over the next you know, 10, 20 years. I think financial media, social media. I worry about a next generation of of people overseeing these kinds of funds having a very different time horizon. Than, than the folks who, for example, in my committee who oversaw it the last 30 years who really thought long-term. I'm not too worried about it at Notre Dame because I think we have that in our culture, but I'm seeing changes in other places, not necessarily the big endowments, but I get calls from all kinds of investors, you know, looking for advice. And some of the way they frame questions shows me that they're thinking very short-term, quarterly, annual results. Even this annual beauty contest of the big endowments that Bloomberg and some of the financial media just they love to get those numbers as soon as they can. I don't I don't really think about the one year numbers very much. I've got a long term strategy. And you have to have snapshots periodically. You have to compare and I get all that. But a lot of that's noise in terms of earning the kind of returns long term that we want. So I I really worry about short termism. You know, Warren Buffett is so great about cautioning people about that. You know, and I, he always talked about the stock. He always talks about the stock market as being the transfer, the transfer of money from the active to the patient, and that's so true. And so, I, one of the things I keep preaching to my team is we got to make long-term decisions, and we got to keep our eye on the ball. It's hard though; yeah. the world's pressures are very short-term today, culturally, in markets. It's very difficult. Let's dive a little bit into the manager selection process. It's such an important part of what drives the returns. How do you go about sourcing these managers? Yeah, so a lot of ways. I mean, we, we, we certainly get a lot of ideas from our current partners, no question. They're the smartest people in the markets we know or we, we wouldn't be with them, right? So they're, they're really good. We're always asking them for ideas. They tend to know other smart people in their space, especially as they evolve. So a lot of ideas uh, from our managers. We also, there, there's a, just a lot of friends of Notre Dame that, that we've met over the years, alumni, non-alumni, parents of kids, just different folks that we come into contact with. And I have a, a discipline where I, I sort of have a call list. And my staff does too, my senior staff does too. We just touch base with certain people periodically and say, you know, what are you seeing? Which we'll be looking at? You know, is there anybody out there you, you think is of interest? And so we'll, we'll, we'll just try to follow up on that. And, you know, a lot of the time there's nothing particularly new, but, but every now and then there's something very interesting. 
and you get one or two ideas a year from that. It's great. So you, we've we've I think I think you do have to be more entrepreneurial. Use the tools you have available. The, the the public sources are now a commodity, and there's a lot of them. People forgot how to get on the phone and call people. I tell my <laughs> students this: you guys, you got to get on the phone. Stop looking at that damn iPhone and get on get on the phone and call someone. That's where you're going to get ideas. I preach this so much in my class, and I think they get it. I think they start to get it. You know, and I see it in their behavior as they start their careers. You're going to get ideas from smart, experienced people who've been around, not from looking online. The online can affirm things. It can develop some a, a thesis. It could give you research, put the the framework around it. But but the best ideas, I haven't gotten one on good idea from the internet in my career. So once you've met these people, how much time do you spend with someone before you know if you want to make a decision? It, it varies a lot. I mean, it, sometimes you get you get because they're so well known and and they're so experienced and it's easy to check them out or somebody in our network knows them well it can be fairly efficient it can be quick we've had some we met some family office groups in Europe for example that were raising some funds and they were taking outside money and that was relatively quick because they were very well-known people with a long track record and it was really the first time they were going outside so there wasn't really an opportunity before but but this was those were easy Sometimes, sometimes it's, it, it takes you know many, many meetings. Maybe they're younger in the life cycle. You're still getting to know them. They're still getting to know themselves uh, and their philosophy. You know this from your work. So you're looking for them to, to, to articulate a thesis that you can kind of hang your hat on, and, and sometimes it's hard for them to do that in a way that gets you excited, but you, but you think they're good, so you're, you want to stay with them, give them a chance, you know, so you keep coming back. Uh, and, and some of those work out and some don't, but we, we talked to, a, you know, the, the, the Notre Dame family in general, we talked to a lot of people, my peers, you know, I'm not afraid to go call another CIO if I, I hear they might be looking at the same thing and we'll share due diligence and confirm, you know, I think people are doing that more today, to be honest, than they used to. I don't think that there was a lot of that done when, when, I, when I was early on, yeah. that wasn't as common. Sometimes I hear the opposite, you know, I was talking to Jim Dunn was on yeah. last week and he was sort of saying that because of certain certain organizations have CIO peer driven compensation, right? And as a result right. of that, they're less right. inclined to want to share ideas. So I think that's a mistake. We do not have that. Yeah. We never had it, and, and and our board will will. I, I don't think they'd ever do that. That that we don't. Honestly, at the end of the day, we don't really care that much what other people are doing. We're, we we've got our own risk tolerance, our own mission. We're going to do what we need to do for Notre Dame. Over time, we think that's going to generate superior returns, and we're going to be at the high end of our peer group. But I think you just get obsessed with that, and it's a distraction. So I, I, maybe they're just taking my calls more because I've been around 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find it easier today to to share oh, with I, other I, yeah, yeah to yeah. share ideas than than I did you know 10 years ago. And then what have you learned when it comes to that point where you're making a decision? What have you learned about? your own behavioral tendencies and those are the people you've worked with for a long time. You know, do people yeah. like the gut instinct decision the, with backfill research? That's a good question. You know, when I first started, it was easy for me to see the really, really good ones. They stood out. And of course, the bad ones are clear. The middle area when you're younger was harder to discern, right? That middle 80% or whatever. We've certainly gotten better at figuring that out, you know, and making faster assessments of, of that group and, and either moving on or keeping them on a watch list or whatever. I like, an, you know, people say, oh, you have all Notre Dame grads, so you, you, you know, you're all thinking the same way about everything. And, and that, that's just not true. We, yes, we are all Notre Dame grads, but I have so many different personalities. 
and the ways of thinking about things. And they bring very different perspectives on these manager selection issues. So you have to have some common narrative and you have some common criteria that you really have to hang your hat on. We have that. But we're also willing to, uh, you know, willing to weigh different factors differently at, at times based on the asset class or the life cycle of the manager, you know, and how mature they are. There's very, there's a lot of variables. You know this. I mean, it's just there's a lot of variables. It's not an exact science. It's, it's probably half and half. It's hard. It's very hard to predict who's, who's going to really excel from here and, and, and who isn't. Some, sometimes it's extremely difficult. And sometimes you make mistakes. But if you don't do anything, you're, you, you know, you got, you got to do something. So what, what do you think, as you've learned over the years, have been some of the mistakes that you made that you now feel like were actionable and have corrected and try not to make again? Yeah. We, so most of the time when people don't, don't become successful, they, they ended up getting away from some of their own core beliefs. You know, they ended up raising too much money, I think, in private equity. Some of the early buyout funds that were small, they said, oh, we'll never, we'll never raise that kind of money. Or even some large multi-strat hedge funds will never be that big. Well, you know what? They're like 10 times that now, you know, and, and their returns show that. So at some point, we, we sort of get off the train, you know, and say, well, it's nothing we did. You're the one who decided to do that. So don't be mad at us right, because right. that was a decision you made. We're moving on. And obviously, we always try to part in, in a very professional, friendly way. And I think we've done a good job of that. But but at some point, size is very challenging for most strategies. There's some that it's okay. Bonds, maybe large cap equity. You know, there's some it's okay. Yeah. But but for most 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 of our strategies, it's not okay. And then I'd say greed can come in. Sometimes the terms, the alignment ends up moving in a different direction from what originally was. And, and that's also related to size, you know, and that changes the, the relationship. So there's a few things like that. Yeah. And then there's people, they're, they're people, stuff happens in their lives. And yeah, they're, absolutely. They become less focused and they're not paying attention. I've seen that many times and there's nothing you can do to get them back. So you, you've got to, you got to move on. You know, it's, it's hard because, and I, I tell my younger staff, you know, we work so hard to build relationships and get to know people and then when there's a separation, it's difficult. But we have to we have to think of our client, if you will, you know, our, our students and faculty at the university. And then it makes it a little easier knowing that we're we're doing the right thing for them. It always felt like such a subtle thing that you've had so much conviction in a particular person and manager, and okay, they're now not operating at the hundred percent capacity that you wish. Is it 90, 80, 70? And is that still better than, you know, if they now have more perspective and balance in their life, can they still generate the same or better returns? Is the noise around that, you know, it's, a t- it's so it's tough. tough. And some, some can generate, in working 90% or 85%, they're still better than most of the people in their space. Right. And, and so you stay with them, but some can't. And that's, that's just a judgment you make. And we, yeah, we're dealing with that now with some of our hedge funds. We've had longtime partners, some of the best people ever in the business, they're clearly not putting the time in they used to. They're great people, and that's their decision, you know. At 80%, are they still better than most? Yeah, but at 50, no. Or 60, no. They just can't be. It's too competitive. Yeah. And so, just that, you, know, you make those judgments. And do you tend to learn that following a softening in returns? We've tried to get better at anticipating that by, by, by just asking the right questions. Yeah. You know, I mean... How are you spending your time? You know, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? How, yeah, it's hard. 
ultimately you make judgments about about their activities and focus. We try to anticipate and then move on while things are still good, but that's just Super the timing of that is very hard. We're doing we are doing that better than we used to. It used to be a little more after the fact. We'd see it and then say, all right, well we're moving on. But but we I think we're, I think my team's gotten better at anticipating some yeah. of that. I think it's so important because I, I used to always con- get concerned about that almost as a form of performance chasing. That yes, the performance has come off. Now you think you've identified why, and you think it'll continue. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But you know you're coming out after they were just in a soft patch. Oh, exactly. So that's a lot of yeah. the skill we try to bring right to our work. Yeah. Is trying to figure that out. It just takes a lot of dialogue, but it's still hard. What are the creative ways that you've tried to evolve your monitoring process uh, with the managers that are in your portfolio over the years? So we have a lot. We have a lot more analytical tools. You know, you know the tableaus, different software things that we use. We purchase some outside things. We, we're definitely, you know, confirming our various exposures in much more sophisticated ways, and our risk, you know, yeah. too, in much more sophisticated ways than we have in the past. That's relatively easy, given that we're still mostly have outside partners. And uh, I think I think we have a good handle on all that on a look-through basis. I was always definitely more qualitative. I, I, I would look at people, get to know people, and I could tell if they were good or not. Over time, I became, I, was, I confirmed that more with analytical tools in my own development. But I've seen my team do the same thing. Some of them came more out of the, the quant side or were more comfortable with that to begin with. And they had to develop the qualitative side of their repertoire. So you, get, you come at it both ways. But I really like where we are now in terms of that balance. I think we've got a really good balance there. We have all the information we need and, and all the quantitative assessment. But, but ultimately, it comes down to a lot of judgment. About and the have, people. have you found that there have been instances either at a manager level or a portfolio level where the aggregation of that data informed you of something that you clearly wouldn't have known about? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, definitely. There, there's uh, factor concentrations, you know, that maybe were more extreme than we would have thought, growth or value or whatever the factor is. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, currency exposures, you know, tend to move around. You know, some of our managers hedge, some don't. You know, we, we're not overriding that centrally at this point. We used to have a, a little more of a program there when we were more liquid in all of our exposures, but that's evolved. So, yeah, you need more of these tools today, too, in a global world. I mean, look, we were, most people were investing in China when we started, right? Right, sure. Now you've got exposure yeah. to the emerging markets currencies that I think 13 or 14% of our currency exposure is emerging markets now. You know, no, no, no one currency is overweighted. They're nothing bigger than five, six percent. So it's not a, a real concern to me. But at least I know that because if, right. if I had 13 or 14 in a single currency, I might try to hedge some of that. But I don't feel a need to at five percent. So all of that does factor into yeah, know, that makes portfolio decisions. I was wondering if you could just not needing to name names, but wax poetic about one of the managers in your portfolio in a way that you know, maybe people would understand how special they are to you in terms of their fit in your portfolio? Well, we have a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of good ones and some great collaborations over the years. Uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is seeing operating executives who are real specialists in a certain industry and senior go off and, and, and raise decide to go into more of the private equity space and use their expertise 
to really partner with companies in those in their in their field. But then they know all the talent, they know all the CEOs, they know how it all fits together. And we're seeing more of that. But collaborating with us on the structure of the fund, the alignment of terms, the size, that's fun for us because we know they're good. We know they're really good, but they've not done that kind of investing before. And so just the, the fact that they, they call on us for ideas on how to structure the fund, what kind of terms should we have, how many LPs, what kind of LPs, all of that. I mean, you know, all of us have been through this kind of thing, but I'm seeing more of that. And I, I really enjoy that. I, it's, it's fun to sit down with some really smart people who they don't really know our business that well. We certainly don't know theirs. But to come together to do something really special is really fulfilling. Yeah. So we, we, we're seeing more of that in different sectors, whether it's consumer goods, healthcare, energy, you know, definitely seeing more opportunities to partner with people in those ways. And that, that wasn't the case before. They'd show up with a pitch book and a fund that was take it or leave it. There was no collaboration. It was like, you know, you, you want in, you know, or you don't kind of thing. And do you think they're finding you as one of a very small, I mean, you can imagine it's a couple of universities yes. that whose names, and that's just a result of having exactly. been no, in this seat. No, again, it'd be a handful of investors, and, and I'm sure there are others that are doing the same thing, where they just there's a, there's, a, there's a tenure there, there's a staff there that's been around, they see, they've seen a lot of models of this. I think about my private equity team, so on the private equity side, Mike Donovan, you know, and his team, Tim Dolzel and Brian Rona and those guys, they see so many patterns of success and failure. And you know, a GP loves the idea of hearing about that, especially if they didn't come from the asset management business, right. which which can be an advantage, right? They know their sector, you know, they know the people. So I, I it, it, we love that. There is a degree to which as I'm sitting here listening to you, it's just, it almost feels like in a, in a different context when you're talking to Warren Buffett that you've been here so long and have done so many things right that you're in a position that you can do things, call it, I don't know if I'd say on the fringe, but the next interesting thing that not that many people could do or take the time to do. It's not sort of part of the core. So what would happen if you were tasked with, let's say, a $1 billion pool of cash to put to work today? Maybe you have a little staff, but not the kind of staff you have. How would you think about and even at a high level, structuring that similarly or probably quite differently from what you do here. So outside of Notre Dame, just I'm, yeah, I'm, help, I'm yeah. helping somebody else. They got a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, and, but, and let's assume let's assume it's not a perpetual institution, but it's a long term pool of capital with some liquidity needs. You have a pool of capital that would love to make billion dollars six cash. To 10%, what are you going to do? And, yeah. So right now, so we're, we're today. today. Where given where we are in the cycle, I, I would be very cautious. I'd be very liquid. I would I would keep a higher percentage of cash than I than than we would have now that we do because we have a full array of managers. I would layer into strategies as they became available that I thought were attractive. You know, I wouldn't rush to put it to work. You know, I'd get some basic things in place. Might even use some passive or some style passive indices like that to just affect some exposures. But I would stay more liquid to start. As, as private equity opportunities became available that I thought were high level, I'd, I'd start getting involved. But then that, that'll take years. People ask me, I want to start a private equity program. How long is it going to take to get a mature? It's, it's a decade. It's maybe more, but it's a, probably at least that, right? So I, I would be patient and cautious. I, I wouldn't day one just put it in everything, you know, have some master plan and then just put it all in these various managers and asset classes. I would be very, very measured in putting that to work. 
especially where we are in the cycle. Now, yeah, if this I think is, that's a big part this of is, you know, early 09, after a big drive, probably fast. start to be yeah. a little more aggressive. A couple of little sort of more subtle topics. One you touched on kind of internal management, which may or may not be tied to co-investing. Uh, you talked about the real estate example early on. You mentioned co-investing. I know there are some other institutions similar to yours that say, nope, that changes the nature of the relationship with the GP. We're not going to participate in that. How have you thought about the, the benefits and drawbacks of doing more direct investment? Well, we're, we're, first of all, we're going to pick our spots. We're only going to do it where there's a real edge to doing it, and, and, it's, and, and it only enhances our relationships. We're not going to do anything that's going to diminish or undermine key relationships. It's just that's not – that's that would be a huge negative overall. So we wouldn't we wouldn't even consider that. But look, we have a long-serving team with a lot of experience and knowledge. We have great partners. We should be able to use that in ways that others can't. People that don't have those advantages. We have permanent capital. We have a great institution. It's not going anywhere. You know, we have a great board. We have alignment with our governance structure. So there there should be advantages we have. We're sort of the ultimate long-term investor in many ways, right? And with tremendous advantages. And and I think it'd be unfortunate if we didn't try to drive performance by taking advantage of more of that. So using our team and our history and our expertise and relationships, doing more directs, doing more co-investing, maybe having a bit of an in-house, even public portfolio based on various approaches, I think could be interesting and, and lower fee and I mean, there's some advantages there, but but it's all about, I don't get hung up. Some people get, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do half the funding and we're going to get really carried away. I don't think like that. I'd rather be a little more incremental in some of that, test it out, get comfortable, and then build on that. Sometimes we discard it then. We've, we've, there's been times where we went a direction very modestly and then the markets changed or something happened and we said, no, we're not, we're not doing that anymore. I remember a good example. At one point, it was very fashionable to want to buy a part of the GP. Or want to you know have an ownership stake or buy some of the cash flow of a hedge fund. We did one of those, and it's been fine. It's worked out. There's still a partner. It's been fine. But ultimately, I decide not to do that because I didn't. I wanted to be thought of as independent in the market. I didn't want to feel like I didn't want other partners to feel I was somehow beholden to that firm in some way, or there was some conflict, you know. And I wanted to. I wanted the relationship to be based purely on performance, not not fee revenue. So we did one, we decided not to do it again. Could we look at it in a different way at some point? Sure. But right now we don't feel that's part of our strategy. So that's an example. We sort of went down that road. Oh, let's try that. And maybe we'll like it and maybe we'll do more of that. And we decide not to do it. What's the biggest current subject of debate in the office about an investment topic? Yeah. I, so all the geopolitical stuff, of course, is massive. And, and of course, we can't control any of that. So yeah, you know, we talk about it. You know, what will we do in a crisis? What will we do if the market was down twenty, thirty percent? You know, the sort of those sort of scenarios. I think all major investors think about that. But that's we you know day to day. Who knows? It's it's hard to predict. You you know you're gonna at least you have a sense of what you do, but there's not much else to talk about. I think we're focused more on okay, how can we drive our edge? What is our edge, and how can we drive it? You know, thinking about maybe we have too many managers. Maybe we should have more concentration. Maybe we have more conviction. Probably an area we, we probably could have could do better at, you know, bigger allocations to a fewer number of firms. You know, I, I, the big endowments tend to have a lot of partners because they do so much private investing. But I, I think we're probably at the higher end of that. So that's something we talk about. More control activities, you know, like I've been talking about. More ways to control 
the alignment, and maybe it's people younger in their life cycle. And it's just to pick on the first one. So is the debate about concentration, that's an easy concept for everyone to say, yeah, we should be more concentrated. Does the debate come in because you love your group of managers? Yes. So implementing yes. that means we have to choose yes. one son over the other, yes. one daughter over some the other of that, daughter. Some yeah. of that. And then, look, to me, even though I went from managing $400 million to $12 billion, to me, you know, twenty million is a lot of money. I mean, so you know, I've still got the old thinking, you know. So, so maybe maybe I should have done fifty, but we did thirty. You know, I look at it, almost any private fund. How much can we afford to lose? I know that's probably too conservative, to be honest, because we do such a great job of getting the right people. But I do think of that. So we we probably could be a little more aggressive there. But I've been saying this for ten years and. It hasn't happened yet. Not, not yet, so. not yet. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that you've talked about at times is is doing an annual offsite meeting to review yeah, yeah. what you've learned. I was wondering if you could share what some of those lessons have been. I'll tell you, uh, I have such a great team that thinks a lot beyond the numbers, maybe because it's more like a family office. So we do, we do a couple of things. One, we do a very extensive investment retreat. We actually just do that on campus because we're just going to be sitting in a room. We might as well do it here. It's a pretty, pretty beautiful place. So let's just focus. So we do three days every year. We just intensely review our portfolio and structures and think about other ideas. But then we do an offsite, which is a little more leadership, self-development. We do pick three or four key topics and have our younger staff do a presentation on, okay, what's the effect of Amazon on retail, renewable energy, and how's that evolved? artificial intelligence. You know, we might do a deep dive on some topic and let and it's a great opportunity for the younger team to 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 have that opportunity to present for an hour and a half on something. But a lot of the other time is 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 sort of team building, self-development. I, I bring in speakers. You know, you want you want to help motivate people and keep them excited, help them evolve. We all need to evolve, right? If you if you if you don't think you need to evolve, you're already dead. You might as well hang it up because we have to evolve. I I think I've done a pretty good job evolving myself in terms of there were certain things that I wouldn't have considered years ago that I, I, I find are very attractive today uh, in terms of kinds of managers and, and, and approaches. The things we read to keep up with markets are very different today. How you get information is very different. You, you, your work patterns are different. You, and you have to embrace those things. You know, Keep some of the core bedrock things that you know are important, but then being willing to evolve. So it's a chance for us to talk about all that as a team to make sure that we we're, we're on, our, the, on our game and just just staying ahead of the pack, you know. So a lot of conversation, you know, just sitting and talking about this stuff. But I, I like the I like to take the whole person into account and in, as in how I lead my team and make sure that they're being nourished in a lot of ways. That's very motivating to them. That's why they stay. And that's why they they're enriched in their work and they feel that it's important. They feel appreciated. They're allowed to, hey, if there's a certain skill or tool or a conference or something they need to do for them, we do it. I'm pretty open to that because I think if you have a team that feels that they're being allowed to grow and evolve and supported in that as human beings, which we are, whether it could be their faith life, it could be a lot of things. I, I think that's important. And so we, we, we're pretty good at that, I think, yeah. Yeah. because we're aware of it and we talk about it. That may be a little different than... Some funds, you know, some other institutions. What concerns you most about the the markets and the environment today going forward for the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of leverage still in the world that from bad behavior in the past, it does feel to me like it puts a bit of a cap on 
potential economic growth uh, in the world. You know, that just there's just so much debt out there, and uh, that that certainly bothers me. You know, you, you know, sixty forty, the last ten years was was probably five five and a half percent, and it feels to me like the next ten years could be that or worse. Hopefully not, uh, but. So let let's say let's say that that a sixty forty does five five and a half percent again, and inflation is two to three. How am I going to get a five to six percent real return? You know, and the kind of returns we're we're used to. It's, it's a challenge. I think it's a real challenge. I think institutions were spoiled in the eighties and nineties with the kind of returns and and the, the real returns and and uh, well, even the two thousands. I mean, yeah, yeah. And so I just I just to develop scenarios that are a lot more severe than what they're doing and how that impacts the cost structure and fundraising plans, all of that. I, I really do compliment our finance team at Notre Dame and our executive vice president. Our finance committee of the board is tremendous. So they're, they're on top of those issues, and they take input well from me on where I think interest rates are going or what scenarios they should be running on market returns for the budget. Very collaborative, which I don't think is always the case you know, at big institutions. So I feel Notre Dame is in good shape that way, but there's just so many unknowns. There's just, just a lot of unknowns. I worry about trying to make a 5 to 6% real return in a, in a very low return, slow growth world. That's why we're going to have to be, uh, you know, we're going to have to use our edge and that I talked about in ways, maybe more, more important ways than in the past. It's just harder. It's, it's going to be hard. My, these jobs are much harder today, I think. I think they're a lot harder. There's so many variables to consider. And competition, I mean, I look at, gosh, I think there were 5,000 kids after the CFA in 1988. Now there's 200,000 a year. I mean, you, you look at the, the shifts in the market and the amount of talent that's coming to financial services. Even the distribution of endowment returns it used to be very wide. You've seen this. Now it's so tight. You know, it's like, it's just, it's an amazing shift in competition in the industry. And, you know, a lot of pension funds, foundations, family offices have gotten sophisticated. You know, those were easy competitors to beat, you know, years ago. It's, it's a lot, people, you know, people are more aware of what it takes to be successful. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing generally. It, yeah. it makes it harder to give you Self, stand the confidence out. that you it's hard can to stand out. deliver. But that's why we work so hard to think about these other things right. we can do. But if it's just a few basis points extra a year in each of these, it'll add up, you know. As long as you have that time horizon, that alignment with your managers and your board and the proper governance, as long as that's all in place and they're, they're, they understand that these things take decades, it'll be fine. Yeah. The moment you, that breaks down, then you've, you'll undermine the fund. So I want to close and move towards a couple of closing questions with, with something that I've thought a lot about. This is clearly a mission-driven organization and very personal to you. And, and we're, How often, when you're going through a tough moment, does that sort of come into your head? Is it, is it every day? It's every day. Yeah. It's every day. Yeah, I, I wake up every day thinking about that my work today is going to be important to this place. You know, one way or the other, it's going to what I do today is, is going to be built on in the future and other things. So whether it's a student I see or a faculty member, just that being open, you know, hearing their perspective. They want to talk about social responsibility, which we have a longstanding social responsibility policy as a Catholic school. It's very rigorous. And they it's, it's nice for them to come in and want to understand that. But then they have their own perspective on that. 
but just being available and, and, you know, look, we're busy, right? I travel a lot. I got a lot of meetings with managers making time for that. But every one of those is important because that we're a, we're a university and they need to understand, you know, how that all fits in. So just knowing that and taking those meetings and those, those half hour conversations, you have to have that perspective. If you're not thinking that way, you won't take those. And I have a lot of peers who don't do any of that. They just won't. And maybe that works at their institution. I don't think it really works here. And I think it makes my job easier if I do that. And then I've got, I've got emissaries all over campus who, who know the facts. And then they can tell their dorm mates or their department colleagues, oh, I talked to Scott. Here's what they do here. Yeah. You know, I, I, we, we'll get them in to speak to us. You know, there's a trust factor that I think that's really important there that, that I think we've developed. And, but you've got to keep doing it. Because these students turn over every year, you get a new group yeah. in. I've got I've got freshmen already setting up meetings, wanting to hear about our, you know, various policies. Yeah. Oh boy. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna go speak. Um, I try to every year, but it's not sometimes every other year. Just do a broad talk to the student body, whoever wants to come. But it has to be a student because I think it's important they have that opportunity and they can ask questions. So I that's, try to be available. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, you don't always agree on everything. But that's okay. So I want to turn to some closing questions. But before I do, I have a selfish question for you, yeah. which is I, I know that you're on the advisory board for Major League Baseball's. Well, they or, disbanded that. Oh, they did? Yeah, they started. So Dave, Dave was, Swenson was, was on that yeah. and a few others. And the owners wanted a group they could use to bounce ideas off of and get a structure going. That happened. And then they hired a full-time advisor. Oh, okay. So I think, I think that they're in a much better place. So they... They actually disbanded that, so but it was oh, fun. So I was, yeah, was you fun. know, I'm a huge baseball fan, no, so I thought that'd be a fun thing. All right, so a couple of closing questions: What is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? Oh my god, <laughs> that's not one I thought of. Favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time? I might have to think about that. Uh, what have other people said? <laughs> <laughs> there's a range of uh, responses. I don't think there's. Any, I mean, I, I can't think of anything. I have a lot of favorite things to do, but I don't consider them a yeah, waste no, of time. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. All right, let's, <laughs> let's move on. What, what was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? I have a well, feeling of where that yeah, might go. No, well, there's been a lot. I'd have to say uh, the championship season in 1988 was my first year back working. Yeah. And the buildup, you know, the Miami Hurricanes were sort of the king of college football in the 80s. And the way that we beat them here in 1988, when I think is one of the great college football games in history, you know, Lou Holtz versus Jimmy Johnson. And it was every player that started on both sides was drafting the NFL. You know, that was a hell of a college football game. And uh, we were fortunate to come out on top and win the title then. That was probably the best sports moment if I had to yeah. pick one. That's great. Yeah. Um, what phrase did your uh, mother or father repeat to you over and over again that most stuck with you? You know, they, they, were, they were really good at getting us a sense of work ethic. I, I don't know if it was a phrase. It was more of a philosophy that, you know, we had summer jobs. We, I had a paper route. I worked in a plant, 120 degrees. And, and, and when you do that, you want to go to school. So, <laughs> so we, they were very good about making sure we had a work ethic, that we had to provide for ourselves, that we always worked and it was great. We met a lot of great people and, and you had your own money. And I remember I bought a bike, you know, at 12 years old and, and, and just that sense of self 
accountability and always supportive. But I don't know if it was a phrase, but it was definitely a philosophy yeah, yeah. of you, you got to work, you know, and take care of yourself. What are you most proud of? I, I'm, I'm most proud of the way Notre Dame's advanced over the last 30 years I've been here, the team I've brought in. You know, I look at the some tremendous facilities that are opening this fall. And I looked at I looked at a, a little map our facilities people showed me. Almost half of the campus has been built in the last 30 years in terms of square footage. Some amazing world-class facilities and programs. So just I'm just very proud to see Notre Dame, my school, doing so well academically, having a real presence in the global dialogue on important issues. Our kids having amazing student experiences. My gosh, I think... I think we had seven international programs when I was here. We have 45 programs in 25 countries. I mean, it's incredible. Two-thirds of our kids spend time overseas while they're here. Languages, you know, everything. But, but the team I've worked with is so superb, such great people. Watching them evolve, my team in the investment office, watching them go through life and, and get married and have kids, and, and all of that has just been so rewarding. And, and, you know, I'll say to work with great leadership, you know, Father Hesburgh and I were very close. He always thought the endowment was so important. He said, you know, he would, every time we hit a billion dollars, he would call me for dinner. He said, we've got to celebrate. And I remember when he started, it was seven million in 1952. So a billion to him was like unheard of. And then it was two, then it was three. But I had dinner with him and Father Joyce, his executive vice president when he was alive, but then Ted for many years. And even even after the crisis, we'd already celebrated one milestone. Then we came back. He goes, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate it again. And he just he just loved that. And I, I have to say, that was very motivating, the importance of the endowment to the life of the university. Because I know when he became president in 1952, they asked him how he was going to make Notre Dame a great university. And he said, well, one of the things is, if you look at the, the best schools today, they have the biggest endowment funds. So we've really got to grow our financial resources. And it was something he just just really pounded the drum on for 50 years and then the leadership since then is just tremendous you know but ted for the endowment ted was in my early days too being a younger person and 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 just the motivation that the legendary father hesper brought to me because we thought he was a rock star you know he chaired the civil rights commission he 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 could pick up the phone and talk to any president the pope he could talk to anybody you know and get stuff done that was he was extraordinary that was a that was pretty heady stuff for a younger guy you know what do you fear most well, I, I fear that, that we have such bad leadership in the world today. It's hard for me to point to really great examples of leadership at any level. I think Pope Francis provides that uh, in, the, in the Catholic world, in the, in the, in the faith-based world, in, a national, in an international way. But it, it, there's some CEOs that are tremendous leaders. But boy, it, it's really hard to look around the world today and, and, uh, and find really great examples of leadership. I, I worry about, and why, why aren't more of our best talents going into real leadership positions in our government? You know, it feels like we've, we, we, we just need to develop our culture again where those things are really important. I mean, there was a generation that thought that that was the highest calling. I, I, don't, I don't see that today. I, I, I talk to our young people. Yes, yeah, some of them want to be in politics, but most of them don't. They find the discourse just, they don't want any part of that. And I, that worries me. Because we need them. We need them to change the world. We need them to show leadership. So I, I worry a lot about that, to be honest. I think this will ever come to anything else. I think you're going to be here for a long time. But what profession, other than investing, might you uh, want to attempt? 
Well, I, I, I thought I might be a football coach at one point, you know, years ago before I started here. thought yeah. I might coach, teach and coach high school football, maybe go on to college or something. Probably too late for that. I, I'm, I serve on the board of the Vatican Bank. I think you might know. I was appointed by Pope Francis to that last year. I'm, I'm working with them on some transformational things in their asset management, which I, we're hoping to get done. I find that extremely attractive and fulfilling. We started this separate company, a not-for-profit called Catholic Investment Services, with the Jack Brennan from Vanguard, who's also chair of our board. We're trying to build that. We have a great staff there. Uh, my team is is involved in helping get managers to be part of the program. But I think you know when you think about four thousand Catholic charities in the U.S., about one hundred fifty billion aggregate dollars, most of it not particularly well managed. And this is a problem across all faiths. You know, I just felt there's something I could do to help with that. So I would very much like to continue to help them. And maybe 10 years from now, I'll help them even full time, you know, or do something to really move that ahead. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? Well, a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) We can put the financial markets aside. Yeah. Well, I know how to roll my wrist through the strike zone of my golf swing better than I did 10 years ago. I'm a better putter. (laughs) 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 There's a lot of things. you know, human nature, you know, you as you get older, you, you're, I think, more astute about human nature and, and, and building relationships and maintaining relationships and, and uh, just the importance of that and how the, having deep relationships with people and your family and, and uh, is really fulfilling, you know. So I, I think as you get older, you just become, you know, more appreciative of all those things. Yeah. But uh, that's one I, I think more about. There's a lot. <laughs> most, most things. All right. Last question. It is, uh, it is your waning days. You are much older than you are today. You are down at the grotto yeah. thinking about and looking back on your life. What advice would you give yourself today? I'm starting to tell my students this. Just, you know, we all want to be successful. We all want to do good things in life. But make sure you enjoy the journey, too. I mean, I... I, I look at our kids today, and they're so driven. They're talented. They're smart. They've been blessed with a, a lot of advantages. But sometimes I worry they're not enjoying the ride because they're just they got to achieve. We got to get that job. We got to get that A. Then we got to get that internship. Then we got to get that job. Or I'm going to let my parents down. You know. And I'm not speaking about every kid, but I do see because they are high achieving young people and they are talented. I just, I just hope that they, you know, they value relationships, that they can enjoy the ride, and it's not about getting that next job. They're going to get that job, no problem. They're the top one percent of people in the world of talent and ability, you know, and 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 so there's no problem whether you're Yale or Princeton or Notre Dame or Stan, you know, you're going to get that job. So just making sure you really appreciate the journey fully and take care of what's important, you know. I think that's. That's something I would I would want to make sure that that I, I would I would have would tell myself even younger. I think I have to a point. I've been here thirty years. It's not that hard to be at Notre Dame, <laughs> but but it's you know you, there's things you you know you would do maybe a little, even differently. Scott, thank you so much for the time, the thoughts, the lessons. Thank really, you, Ted. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoy your 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 shows and and uh, it's been nice knowing you the last twenty years or so. <laughs> Thanks, thank Scott. you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.